This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. For all the talk of inherent vice's hazy, lazy, and sunshiny avoidance of dark and gritty neo-noir, the movie doesn't get much more harrowing than our favorite gumshoe, or gum sandal, I guess, getting tied to a pipe and shot full of PCP in last week's scene. Or maybe it does. Maybe Doc wandering into the film's true heart of darkness happens here, tonight, in a hitman's garage, where he learns who his true partner has been all along. In his soul-bruisingly good existential pulp noir novel, Blood Standard, author Laird Barron wrote, I longed to chase villains, right wrongs, and restore the peace. Upon surviving into manhood, though, I discovered the black and comedic irony that is every gumshoe's existential plight. The secret that dime store novels and black and white movies always elide. Each clue our intrepid detective deciphers. Each mystery he unravels. Each crime he solves makes the world an unhappier place. And while that bit of sorrowful wisdom might not apply to the entirety of Inherent Vice or Maybe it does, depending on how you look at the movie. I think it's a genuinely apt elucidation of the tone that has taken over the film at this point, in which Doc has seemingly stumbled out of the warm, sunny screwball haze of a breezy Neil Young breakup song and has fallen ass backwards onto the cold concrete floor of such bummer noirs as Night Moves and Clute and Cutter's Way. And joining us today, as Doc completes that landing, onto that unforgivably cold, hard, concrete floor of Inherent Vice's dark noir mini-arc is a gentleman who, I believe, is among the blessed few who fell in love with the film upon first viewing, and, like a certain podcast host you know and have come to grudgingly tolerate, he has only grown more obsessed with the film as time has gone on. The founder and editor-in-chief of the film stage and likely one of the only human beings besides myself who explodes and breaks into a legitimate sweat with each new news update on the production of PTA's new 70s film. Please welcome Mr. Jordan Raup. Jordan, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great summation. You are correct. Yes, I think I'm one of the first guests to have to be on when a PTA film is filming. I think you are, well, no, you are, yeah, you are the second. You are the second. second. Okay. You're, you're the second Jordan and the second <laughs> guest because uh, uh, just last week when Jordan's episode was being recorded, as soon as it was, it was done, I drove down to the gas station, Soggy Bottom Gas Station, uh, to see if I could uh, uh, catch the, the filming. And of course, it was gone by the time I got there. The billboard wow. was still up. But yeah, you, we're, we're in it now. We're in a whole new era. I know. It's the exciting. New, new, new PTA 70s flick. It's not, it's, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say, it's not going to be as good as in Hair Vice. Uh, he, he, he constantly surprises us, but we, we, we know. We're, 
we're, we're true fans. We know nothing's going to get better than Air Vice. You know this. You're not going to exactly. say it. But you know, you yeah. know it's true. But yeah, I, I did want to kick this off by saying you, you are a man after my own heart in that you were one of those people that when you, you saw the, the film, you didn't need to see it 16 more times to be like, yeah, you know, I think there's, there's some here. There might be some here. No offense to those that did, but you, you're someone who it, it hit you the day of. And when you walked out of Inherent Vice the first time, because everything is saved in the hell, the hell site that is Twitter, uh, you, you, you posted, PTA pulls off Pinchon, a warm, hazy, funny, sprawling, one-of-a-kind work. And then when you saw it a second time, you noted on that same hell site, Inherent Vice coheres wonderfully on second viewing. PTA's most empathetic film, maybe among his best, I don't know why you had to put that in a question mark. And then you put Phoenix is perfect. Brolin is a secret MVP. And what's interesting about those two responses to the first time you saw the film is that they both happened on the same day, right? That is correct. Yeah. The right. first Tell me day about the that. Film, yeah. Yeah. So it was the first day the film publicly screened at a New York film festival. Um, I believe, I know you had my friend Corey Everett on who did see it, you know, I think three times in a row in the evening, <laughs> but I will say I got in a little earlier cause I was at the press screening. Uh, I, uh, that's, I woke just, up. Oh, that's insane to me. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'd waken up very early for New York film festival. As any other press members know, you have to kind of wake up early, get in line. It might be raining, you know, you're outside. Um, so I remember lining up around 8am in New York, uh, upper West side. And uh, yeah, sitting down, ready to, you know, I didn't, I didn't watch the trailer at all. I had oh, read the really? book. Yeah, I had, I had read the book uh, like right before, I think. And then, yeah, the film started. I think I was hooked from probably the can song. And, uh, and then I, I distinctly remember, I was thinking back on this moment, you know, six years ago. And the moment that I fell in love with the film actually was a single shot. It's the shot where Doc's interviewing, entering uh, Channel View Estates and the red flags are in the, the red background. flags billowing. Yep, and Johnny Greenwood's score kind of kicks it up. And I was like, I love this movie. This, this is like the mood <laughs> I wanted a film. And it, and it didn't let up from there. And yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Brief, brief shout out to Increment Vice producer and podcaster extraordinaire Blake Howard, who I also believe that is his favorite shot in the film, is the, oh. the fluttering red. There's something so dreamlike and hey is anyone checking in the clock to see how quickly we've gone off off script and gone afield uh there's something so magical about that and just so this sounds like such a both pretentious but also dumb film bro thing to say it's just such pure cinema there's there's no dialogue it's just that explosion of music uh that kind of weird tropicalia and these fluttering flags against a blue sky and doc's big goofy permed head walking through the frame and there's something so beautiful about that but also weirdly ambiguous and way too artsy fartsy for <laughs> for what the scene requires which all feels very pta and it's that it is one of those moments that i think is in a different kind of subtler way it's analogous to when can explodes from the soundtrack it's just this is such a pta moment this is such a moment that you don't get with another filmmaker and if you're a PTA obsessive, like I am, and I think you are, you, we can also just say fanboy, because uh, I am. But when those moments happen, you can't help but just smile because you're like, you're getting, 
you're getting that kind of specific cinematic euphoria that only this director provides you, whichever director you're a fan, boy or girl for it's, this is, this is one of those moments. And I, I'm just glad that you mentioned it because I do every time that moment hits the screen, I smile. It has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't move the plot. doesn't really gird any specific emotions uh, uh, inherent to the film. It's just a wonderful piece of cinema. It's just, it's just perfect. Yeah. Now you saw it twice in the same day. Yeah. Well, so I, I actually, there's a little bit more to the morning story. So the press screening, um, you know, happened, you know, the credits are rolling. I'm sitting there like in a day is like, wow, this movie just knocked me on my ass. It's like, I, I love every moment of it. I love the mood, the feeling. And um, I turn around and uh, another critic was like, what, can you tell me anything that happened in that movie? What, what was the plot? What happened? And it was the biggest buzzkill, I think, <laughs> that I could have imagined because I, I was just like, I cannot believe that other people didn't get that same, that same feeling from it. And so, and as the day went on, you know, New York Film Festival is interesting because they usually have the press screens in the morning. And then, you know, the, as Corey mentioned when he was on, it's, you know, there's a string of films um, at night. And so no one really sees it in between then. So it's just, you know, critics who have to badger it out during the day and, and discuss their feelings. And I remember the reaction was definitely more on the person behind me side. And I was kind of in a little bit of a daze the rest of the day, just thinking back and could not wait to see it again. Uh, I brought my wife and friends to the, you know, the evening screening. Um, but yeah. And so, so the film ended and the press conference happened and it was, you know, the, pretty much the whole cast. Um, Joaquin Phoenix did not answer a single question as I'm sure you've watched the press. Conference. I have. He's dead <laughs> silent the whole time. Yep. And then, um, and yeah, it was, but it was cool to see. I mean, there was a lot of other, you know, great parts of it. And then, um, yeah. And, and then, so I came back, uh, I think I went to the later screening at night. I think it was at 9 PM. Um, Steve McQueen was sitting in front of me, uh, which was, which was fun. Um, and then I remember I, I furiously wrote down the music and during the credits and we, we were the first site to post a, the Spotify playlist of mm. the soundtrack before anyone knew what the soundtrack was. Um, and I remember being, you know, that was awesome because I could listen to it for, you know, two, two, three months before the actual release. So that was fun. Um, that's pure. Yeah. That's pure and nice <laughs> nerdetry right there. That's, that is dedication to the cause before there was even a cause to be dedicated to. My God, look exactly. at you. Well, brief question then. So we were, you don't have to name names uh, as to who the poor soul was that sat behind you that, that was like, didn't get it. But when, when, was there any moment between those first and second viewings, you've seen the film, you're blown away, you're loving it, but you can feel that the room is totally not with it or a big chunk of the room is not with it. At any point during that day, did you, did you begin to think, well, maybe it's not really as good as I thought it was. Is it, is it me or was I off? Was I just too, too tickled by seeing, uh, you know, screwball comedy and, and sad breakup sex that I just got lost in this and I'm missing, I'm missing what they're not seeing. Well, it was strange. I definitely, you know, I didn't watch the trailer, but I had paid attention to, you know, every kind of little murmur. I think a week before someone, there was an LA screening maybe, and someone, you know, mentioned like Big Lebowski nut stuff and, and, and that, those comparisons. And, um, and so I think I went in with some of those expectations and, and, but I found the film, you know, to be hilarious, you know, in certain sections. I mean, anything, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's performance in general, just every little kind of inflection he gives to certain 
certain things um, I was laughing at and, and especially the, the uh, Martin Short Blatnoid stuff, like that <laughs> the whole day that was just playing back in my, in my mind, you know, you know, don't pay any attention to this, uh, <laughs> this in the backseat, like that, the, that line. Get everybody like, paranoid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think I was just more excited to see it again rather than being like, oh no, I wonder if, if you know, my, my, uh, my feelings will change on the second viewing, so. Did you think that like having, having read the book, did that, do you think that gave you a better in than, cause I mean, I know that that is a big, you know, it's a, I know it's, a, it's almost a cliche now to say, you know, when you're watching, especially like a, a neo-noir to, to never pay attention to the plot. Don't try to hang on to the plot. The harder you try to hang on to the plot, the less anything is going to make any sense to you. Just go with the mood, go with the characters, go with the feel. But because you had essentially read the roadmap, do you feel mm -hmm. like that gave you a leg up? Or was the book just as incomprehensible to you as the film is to everyone else? It, it, it gave me the same experience. Whereas when I'm reading the book, I'm pulling different lines and, and different like character descriptions out. And when I, I the, that's experience, the experience of the movie to me, at least at first, is when you're, when you watch the movie, it feels like every scene is almost like a short story in itself where you're, you're introducing a character, a dynamic and, you know, Doc's the one that carries us through, but it's it's all these other characters that make up you know this whole universe. And and when you're seeing each scene, you know, play out, it's it's like you're getting a little window in each of these lives. Um, and so that's the impression I walked away from the book with. Obviously, there's this massive overarching part, this uh, uh, overarching arc where it's just you know everything with the golden fang and and kind of this sinister underbelly of everything. But uh, it was the same experience when I watched the movie the first few times, where it's just like. I love the way the scene is constructed, you know, and, and that, and that, so that's kind of what I walked away with first. And then obviously on my 10th viewing or less than 10th, probably obviously the second one, I knew I could piece everything together, but as, the more you watch it, the more you kind of piece everything outside of kind of the characters together. You know, I, <laughs> I gotta say, it's so comforting to hear someone use the phrase. And by the 10th time I saw it, it makes me feel a little less strange when I hear someone, you know, by the 10th, the 20th, the 50th, the 60th, the 100, 109th time I saw the film. Because I, I just feel like I'm a little less committable uh, when I know that someone else is, is, is as lost in this madness as, as I am. Did you read the book because you're a, a pinch on nerd or were you because no, you're a PTA nerd? Yeah, PTA. I haven't actually read any other pinch on. So I, I never, but after listening to like uh, Bill Gay and like other people on this podcast, I'm like, I, that's next on my list now to just go through everything. I mean, it's certainly, you, I would argue that either Vice or obviously The Crying of Lot 49, simply because it's so damn short, uh, you know, these are, these are good. It, it's a good entry point into his, his style, but also, uh, it's it's not like it's it's not it's still not easy work, but it the, the there's not quite as much heavy list heavy lifting as something like insane like Vineland or Gravity's Rainbow or Mason and Dixon, mm -hmm. which will break your brain. Like you will you will cry just from the or at least I have found like that the effort that those those books require it pays off, but it it's a lot of work. He does not meet you halfway, which is probably the biggest duh statement that'll ever be uttered on this podcast. Is that Thomas Pinchon is hard now. <laughs> So you, you, you watch the film twice in one day. Yeah. And so you are, again, you are part of that rare pantheon on Increment Vice, the people who love the film, first viewing on. And as such, you have a pretty unique relationship with this wacky little film. You haven't had to have, I don't think, the, the push and pull and that weird 
I think sometimes inherent vice for people that don't like it right off the bat, it, it becomes like that song that you hate at first, but then you find yourself starting to hum it in the shower. And then finally you're like, well, I'll put it on a mix. It's not that bad. I'll throw it on Spotify. I'll put the record on. And I think that there's a lot of people who go see the film and they get that. It's like, ah, oh, God, I don't know. I mean, I love PTA, but I don't know what he was doing here. I don't know what he was, but then a couple months later, it just, it starts worming their way, worming its way in their head. They start thinking about it a little bit more. They go back, they check it out. Or they have a friend that pesters them to come onto a podcast and talk about it. So they're forced to rewatch it. And then they're like, hey, you know, there's something here. But that, that requires a lot of give and take, a lot of push and pull. And kind of like with Thomas Pinchon, you're having to meet the film halfway to be able to enjoy it. You are one of those people, on the other hand, I don't think that you felt, I think you felt the film came to you. You didn't have to do any work to fall in love with it. So I'm going to ask you what I asked another guest, Kim Morgan, who was just as haunted and entranced as we were the first time out. And that is why, why, why does this, why did this film speak? Why did it speak so strongly to you on that day, that first time out, first two times out? Sure. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of my favorite films, it's, um, they kind of invite you in and invite you to like lean into them almost. You're not, they're not there to like assault you or, or try to, you know, you know, dull your senses. And I feel like this film, especially rewatching it, I just rewatched it again today. Um, every conversation, you're kind of on the same wavelength as Doc, as if it's someone who's kind of talking about this grand conspiracy happening or, you know, what's happening to them. Um, you're kind of pulled in a little bit. You might not fully grasp what's happening, but, but each scene kind of pulls you in further and further. And I think the scene that we'll discuss later um, is kind of this interesting breaking point um, where some of the conspiracy, you know, starts to unravel in a big way. Uh, or more is opened up in a big way. And so, um, so yeah, I think for me, it is that, that kind of mode of filmmaking where even the way, you know, PTA films, it, it's mostly two shots and he's slowly pushing the camera in on conversations. And it's just, I mean, you repeat that 10 times and it's, it's just interesting way that I really haven't seen many films take where it's, it's there to invite you in deeper into this world as you keep going and keep going. I mean, I love, you know, I love PTA's other films, but a lot of it seems like each, you know, pre There Will Be Blood is, you know, a lot of his films are, let me show you this fancy way I can shoot the scene, or um, I'm really, you know, trying to emphasize um, something in the scene. Whereas with Inherent Vice, it feels like the whole film is kind of slowly unfolding in front of you in a very exciting way, in a very, um, in a very like, a drug that you're kind of like hooked on, as you know. Um, Any, yeah. yeah. Keep going. You're on a roll here. No, yeah. Well, I would say, like, you know, I love Phantom Thread with all my heart, but that is a film where it, it it has a central idea to it and it explores it fully. Whereas this film, like I said before, it is a it is more of a film that has a million ideas thrown in, and in this really intoxicating blender that is, um, and each each character you meet kind of. Um, puts their perspective on, on, on these ideas. So um, it could be funny, something funny like Ruben Blatnoid, or Blatnoid's um, kind of more, you know, humorous perspective or something, you know, really like devastating like Jenna Malone's um, that also has tinges of humor in it, the, the way Doc reacts. Um, it's, it's just very, yeah, it's, it's, it has like everything in a movie. <laughs> well, you're, I mean, you're not, I mean, obviously I agree because I mean, Jesus, look at what I'm, I'm doing with my time. Uh, it, you know, but it's interesting, you know, you, 
something that you used to describe the book, you, you, you said that uh, it almost felt a little short story-like in a way, and that there are just these, it's almost like the book is, there's definitely an overarching vision to, to the mm -hmm. novel, uh, and yet it's built in the most modular of ways. And yes, I know all books with chapters are somewhat modular, but <laughs> very much, as you said, it, it almost felt like an accretion of short stories and an accumulation of short stories uh, that, that are all kind of singing the same song. And I, it, when you, I, I love that you said that because that's how so much of the film feels to me and not just because I'm breaking the film down in a very modular way and doing a scene mm -hmm. by scene, but in having done that, in having done that, it is, and, and perhaps maybe I'm an idiot, maybe this is the way every film is and I just don't see that because I don't stop and investigate every film on a scene by scene sequential basis. But there is something very modular about in Hero Vice. There is some there is something very short film. When 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 I first began this and I really started breaking the film down into scene-based chunks and then watching each of those scenes individually without watching what came before or what came after, just the they are like a series of short films. It's it's like a with a beginning, middle, and end. And each of those films, those short films carries with them their own unique themes and ideas and inquiries and jokes and satires. And yet when you, when you jam them all together in this weird two and a half hour melange, they all do kind of, they all cohere. They really do speak mm -hmm. to each other and there is an overarching vision to them. Although the cool thing about the movie is what that overarching vision is can kind of differ based on who you ask and who you talk to. Uh, but the, 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 there is something so, so modular. And I think, and I think that's why one of the billions of reasons why I continue coming back is every single time you come back, there are different things to dive into. There are more and more things to, there are more layers of the onion to peel away. And the more you do, the, the, there, there are still things to be found there. And I think that that is, that's just, that's so, and again, there might be someone go, sitting there going, yeah, asshole, that's every movie. Not for me, not for me. And I, 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 when I have dug deep into, I don't feel like I could do this with every film and go, oh my God, look at this. Oh my God, look at that. Mm. I think there is something about this film. There's just so much buried in the murk that has been left to be found. And the irony being that these are things that have been left to be found in a film that is probably the least popular of this filmmaker's works, aside from maybe... Uh, uh, Sydney, which is just harder to find, but this is probably his least popular film, and it's the one. So I, it's ironic that this is the film that people are least likely to go searching for riches. But if you do, it's like my God, it's every single scene, every single character, every single joke is layered on le like level upon level upon level in such a rewarding way. It, it just never, it yeah. never ceases to kill me. Yeah, and I think what one thing that's also exciting about it is, I mean, you say there is like this roadmap you can follow, but I do think you know, even after I've watched it, you know, for the upteenth time, there is this feeling that there's some hole in the middle of the film, this emotional hole that you can't quite put your finger on. That is, that's what keeps you coming back. You know, there's this void both in the characters, but also there's, you know, very, there's a very uncomfortable sequences that you come back. And I mean, you had Angelica Jade uh, Bastion on, who, you know, you talked about a great one. And and that's a movie, I mean, I, I mean, that's a scene where I, I rewatched and I'm like, what is this actually trying to say? And like, that is something where, a scene that can confound and make you uncomfortable is, is just as exciting as a scene that, you know, makes you laugh or 
um, has some weighty emotional thing that unlocks something in your brain that connects with the rest of the film. So I think that's one, another reason I love the film is, you know, some of some of PTA's other films, I can watch them and kind of at the end be like, okay, I got what he was going for. And I love that experience. And um, I can take away a lot from it. And that's how I feel with this one. But then there's an added level of, hmm, what, what, you know, what was this scene actually trying to say? And like, you know, you kind of want to unpack it even more. And you, there's this feeling that you might never unpack it, which is really exciting and probably potentially how you feel because of uh, your reason for doing this podcast. <laughs> well, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and not to be reductive about his other films. Uh, and I'm, I, I more than likely am wrong as I am about most things. But, you know, when I watch a film like Boogie Nights, which I think is a classic, that's an inarguable classic film, classic chunk of American filmmaking right there. And yet when I watch it, there is so much beauty to it. There's so much sweetness to it. There's so much horror to it and comedy to it. There's not a lot of mystery to it in that I'm never watching it going, I'm not, I'm not having to figure it out. And in, in, in movies don't have to be puzzle boxes. You know, not everything has to be, you know, a Christopher Nolan third act. I don't need that. And yet I know what inherit, I know what Boogie, Boogie Nights is when I watch it. It's, it's, it's clear what it is. If, for all its humanity and depth, it's 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 not like a trick that I have to figure out. And same with Magnolia, as as, as heady and and long and complicated and emotionally uh, grueling as that film is, its its point is pretty much not not just on its sleeve. It's expressly stated. You know what can we forgive? Same with Punch Drunk and and There Will Be Blood and even The Master, which you know I I, I make jokes when I reductively say it's a movie that just says you know just fuck already, uh, which, which <laughs> basically what it is, but. And even, and even something like Phantom Thread, which is mysterious the first time you're watching it until you get to the ending and then you're like, oh, okay, yeah. that's, I got it, I gotcha. And that, that does not rob these film, films of their pleasures. It's just, there is something about Inherent Vice where I don't even know, we make jokes, you know, when you're like the 10th time I've seen it. I, I genuinely now, I no longer have any clue as to how many times I've seen it and yet, it, it's certainly up there with the most I've seen any film. And yet there are still beats to it. There are still parts to it. And sometimes when I finish the entire thing, I'll ask myself about the entire film where I'm still going, what the fuck was that? Like, what yeah. was that? Like, what was that to PTA? What was that? Like, why did he choose this movie? And why did he make those choices in the movie? What is that supposed to mean? In, you know, the most obvious example is probably, you know, the sex scene where up to the day of, including the the moment of hitting record and, and speaking with Angelica, I'm still going like, I, I don't know what this is. Like, I'm going to wing it, but I don't know. Just as much as there are days, you know, if you were to say, you know, who is Sordalese really? Hmm. I offered a theory uh, uh, on an episode with Brianna Ziegler uh, that she's a real person telling all of this stuff to a slightly older Amethyst Harlingen, and she's She's telling Amethyst the story of how her parents came back together and, and all because so much of, of, of an air vice feels very Didian-esque and there's that Didian idea of, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, to make sense of the chaos. I came up with that that day. That's what I had. I think it's a pretty good idea. I, I'm sure though, you know, if you said it to PTA, he'd be like, no, man, I just, I just wanted someone to throw the pinch on ease in the movie so we could hear it. Uh, but in the moment, it sounded good. 
and I went with it. But it's that's something that changes. Like today, I, I have no clue if sort of liege is real or not. I don't know. And that's something that I just, I don't think there is another film of PTAs in which I still wrestle with it and I still debate it with myself and I still ask myself, what, what the hell was that? Why is, <laughs> why is that? And there's something magical about that. You know, I brought up in the last episode with the, la- with the other Jordan, uh, we talked about Twin Peaks The Return a little bit and, and the magic of its mystery. And there's just, you know, I don't, I'm not one of those people that I need my art to be something that I have to figure out. Like I don't, I, I'm, I don't like that. And I, and I hate when, you know, there's 80 YouTube videos. It's like the ending of Avengers Endgame explained as if that, yeah. you know, to be diagrammed for us. I don't, I'm not one of those people, but I do enjoy kind of living in a mystery and I enjoy a film that just wants you to live with it a little bit and get to know it. And almost like a person, you know, you're never going to know it completely. And that's kind of a charm and appeal is that you'll never totally have it mapped out. And that I think is one of the many miracles of inherent vice is, is no matter how long you know it, it still keeps you guessing a little bit about what it's thinking about what it's going to do next, no matter how many times you've seen it. And that's just, that's magic. That's just, that, that's just magic, Jordan. It's magic. Exactly. Yeah. I, um, in research for this episode, I kind of went back and, and read what I wrote about it as well. And, and also I found out I was on the Wikipedia page for it, for naming it my number one film of the year and only, only next to a few other people, some of which you've had on the podcast. So that was, that was a treat. That was my next talking point. You beat me to it. <laughs> oh no. Beat no. me to it. How dare you? Well, that, and that is to add, well, before we get to that, actually, I had one more thing that I wanted to say, which, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about what drew you in on that first viewing. And it's interesting that you mentioned, you're like, oh, well, you know, the, all of these two shots and these people kind of sitting in rooms and talking mm-hmm. and you, they're, you're, you kind of almost describe this as almost this kind of narcotic pull that was drawing you in. And, and, and frequently you'll notice many of those shots be, it's a single, it's a single shot that just slowly, slowly, like, like Doc and Penny on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, just slowly pushes into a close-up and you mentioned that as the thing that kind of the, the narcotic that drew you in but I think that what, what I think is so interesting and maybe this is just a a weird uh a weird thing about in terms of uh, in, in, inherent excuse me inherent vice fans which is that the very thing you're describing as what sucked you in as I think honestly what alienated so many others when they are so used to the whip pans and the in the, the close-ups and the Scorseseisms. And or or just as much fell in love with the very controlled Kubrickian uh, operatic grandeur of something like There Will Be Blood. Instead, they get this movie, which is just people in kitchen nooks or breakfast nooks, just sitting around talking about how they miss people. And that's just about the least cinematic thing possible, which is, you know, it's, it is, I think for most people, the least cinematic thing possible is Joaquin Phoenix and Jenna Malone sitting in a dirty, uh, off-white, cream-walled uh, uh, breakfast nook, looking at pictures that we never see, and just shooting the shit. And for, for I think for a lot of people, that's just like, what is that? That's, that's not a movie. What is that? That's theater. That's, that's maybe theater, that's, but that's not cinema. And for people like us and for PTA who said, you know what, there's not much better on the list of uh, great things than a close-up of Jenna Malone, 
for us, that's just, that's bread and butter. That's, that's the good stuff. And I wonder why that is. I wonder if maybe it's just our specific wacky brain makeup that when we see something like that, we're, we're just, we're immediately like high. We have that cinema high. And then other people see that and they're just like, what the hell? Give me a whip pan. Give me something. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, because it is Pinchon, he wanted to, you know, honor the dialogue and you're not going to do that any better than the way he sets up almost every conversation where it's, he got the best ensemble he possibly could. And then he sits him in a room and slowly pushes the camera in. I mean, like you said it yourself, like the, the quote he said with about Jenna Malone. I feel like, yeah, the, you know, the alternative to that is, a very kind of dull, you know, sitcom style or, or, you know, like a, you know, a, you know, something very basic where it's just kind of a basic, you know, two, three camera setup where you're getting, you know, the master and, and, uh, and then everything else. And I feel like with this, the dialogue is so um, interesting that it would, it would uh, kind of, you know, undercut it if you're cutting so much, um, yeah. you know, in scene. So, yeah, I, I mean that, I definitely agree that is, that is something that I do think opens up. Obviously, I think most people like um, the first viewing, they may really, and I still connect with it, but this, you know, the Neil Young, um, you know, the, the, the long tracking shot uh, that then with a beautiful cut to, you know, um, to the, the, what Latinoids enterprise has become, you know, the golden fang has become. Yeah. And, and that kind of, that scene is like, you know, the centerpiece of the film. And I feel like that is something where Vite is able to kind of show off and, um, and it works beautifully and he's able to do all these flourishes in between these scenes. So it's, like I said, it's almost the best of both worlds because you're getting, you're getting everything. You're getting the universe of PTA in a film. Um, just not the way you might expect. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. And we're not going to get to it yet, but of those strange little tricks and camera flourishes and bits of business, uh, which would probably go unnoticed in another film, but are so easily easily spotted in this one because there are so few of them. I believe my favorite happens to, in today's scene, which mm. we will get to, we'll get to that. <laughs> but I did want to, to branch out. You did mention that uh, you were included in the, the, in, the Inherent Vice Wikipedia page as, as one of the three people who put this on your best of the year list and God bless you for it, for doing it. As number one. As that, number that's, one. That, that's the distinction, one. yeah, yeah. Now, Branching outward from the first time you saw it, uh, why and how does it continue to resonate with you? How did it make, why was it your first and number one, your number one film of that year? And, you know, I, I believe I've seen you write that it is not only, not only is that the case, but it is that uh, it is the one of your favorite films, if not the favorite film of the last decade. And there's got to be more. There's got to be more, Jordan, <laughs> than just uh, lulling hypnotic uh, two shots. Like, why? Why has this film remained so powerful to you? That that is a great question. Um, yes, I would definitely say that it is definitely one of, if not the best of the decade. I remember that you know that year. It was a good year. I mean, there was. I remember Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I mean, Boyhood was huge that year. I mean, looking back, I probably would put like. Uh, Phoenix, uh, Christian Petzl's film up there as well. Um, and even they came together, uh, David Wayne, masterpiece. Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I was definitely happy I, I, that year I did make it number one because uh, it has resonated so much. Um, I do feel, and you've brought this up a lot in the, in the kind of conversations you've, you've had, I do think it, it was a very prescient film. I think 
um, a lot of stuff they're talking about has kind of come to the forefront, especially the last, you know, in the five, uh, you know, last five years, I would say, last four, four or five years. And so I think that, you know, having to do with everything, you know, from police brutality to just this undercurrent of, um, you know, the, the society that's crumbling around you and, uh, and everything's under the surface and it's about to be kind of bleed into the public and, and into society and, and, and you're not sure, um, people are not sure, people are, you know, living their lives not knowing uh, that this is a thing that, that is going on in the background. I feel like those themes, you know, you know, the first time you watch it, you're kind of, you know, you know, you like, you like the jokes and kind of the drama and the romance is nice. And then it's like, oh my God, there's just this, there's so much deeper that is, that is just this mess that is happening that you're like, yeah. So I think that, that is something that resonates. Uh, and, and it is weird because I, I am, I want to call myself a PTA fanboy as much as other people. Like I do this is the movie. This is the first time. And I love the master and, and there will be blood when I watch it, but this is the first time that I like actually truly fell in love with, with one of his films from like top to bottom. And so it's, it, it's funny to me going back saying inherent vice is my favorite film of the decade because you know, I, for me, Terrence Malick is the director of the decade. Um, I even all, all the films that, um, that people kind of shit on they're, they're up there for me. And so even song <laughs> to song. And so, it is interesting that I think inherent vices, but it just is like, there's nothing else I can say about, uh, I mean, there's more, a lot more I could say, but there's nothing, uh, there's nothing that another edges out for me because there's so much kind of going on in this one that it's kind of well, rambling, but I hope that makes no sense. <laughs> rambling. This is an inherent vice podcast. I mean, who's, no one's expecting concision here. Uh, and hey, Malik, Malik fan. Speaking of which, Oh, someone who is a massive badlands. So, Although I, I will probably hold out on getting that that song, uh, song to song. Oh, too. Sorry, I'll leave that one to you. <laughs> but well, you know, uh, some some of the things you mentioned there, you know, when you talked about the film's prescience, the one thing I would argue, or the the hair that I would split, mm-hmm. is again what is so kind of disheartening about our our, our current living situation in twenty twenty is that the it's not that the film is prescient. It's not that it uh, predicted anything. It's that nothing changed. Nothing mm-hmm. substantial about society improved since uh, 1970. That, that all of the things that, were, that Pinchon was diagnosing as problems that were ingrained into the American fate before 1970 and then during 1970, nothing has changed absolutely like that, that that these no pun intended that these problems are inherent to the american soul and what what i think what you what you call prescience is just it's just no that's just that's the american spirit unfortunately and that's and that is that but yeah as, as has been i have said in so many episodes recently there is something of a horror movie now in Inherent Vice. You know, I used to watch it. You know, if, if I'm bummed out about a girl, I'll watch Inherent Vice. If mm-hmm. uh, if I'm just feeling kind of nostalgic for being a little younger and a little bit more hopeful, I'll watch Inherent Vice. If I'm looking for a laugh, if I want a 70s detective slash cop movie, but I don't want to get super depressed and watch Night Moves, I'll watch Inherent Vice. You know, if I want yeah. that great Neil Young, sweet, syrupy, saccharine uh, feeling about uh, about about life and about nostalgia. I'll watch Inherent Vice, but also now now uh, 
it's come to a point it's like, you know, if I really just want to feel the bone deep dread and terror of 2020, you know what's a good movie that has this year's number? Inherent advice. It's kind of a horror film with jokes. Uh, and that, and again, I, I, I not to beat a, a dead horse here, I, I, I would reiterate that that horror comes not from prescience, but simply not much has moved, not much has improved as much as, you know, we, we, we pat ourselves on the back for our uh, progression, our liberal progression as a society. You know, I, rem I remember watching the film when just a few months ago there were riots in the streets of Los Angeles and watching these scenes of Doc cuddling in a, uh, in a fetal position as he's trying to get to the glass house and this wall, this blue, this blue line of cops are walking past him or the dread, even though you know exactly what's going to happen because you've seen the film 50 times and uh, all of the characters in the car are white. But that moment in which the LAPD pulls over Doc and Blatnoid and Japonica and Dinas, and you see a cop shakily pointing a gun at all of them and you just, you, there's a, there's a, an added layer. There's an added scum layer of dread to this film that years like 2020, I think really bring into sharp relief. And again, I, I, I'm not saying that anyone did this on purpose. It's one of the sadly magic things about the movie is how well it can speak to just about any time, I think, including, mm -hmm. including this time. And coming from that, you mentioned that. So does the film work for you more on that kind of grand statement pinch on level does it does it hit you at all? Because I mean, for me, it's as as, as somebody speaking of repeating myself, as someone who's listened to the show, you know this. Uh, the, for me, the, the film has always been more of a, 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 a it's more about mood. It's it's, it's more personal. Mm. And it's about yeah. it's about not letting go of people. Uh, does does that does that resonate to you, or is this more to you? It's a, it's kind of the broader political satirical comedy. No, for, for sure. No, it's for sure. It's that that mood that that's at the very core of the film. I think that's what you know pulls me in and, and gets me to rewatch it. And then as I'm rewatching it, I'm seeing, you know, oh, this line here, this line here. Oh, I didn't, you know, I, I definitely heard it and understood it, but now it's kind of opening up this new layer. Um, and I think it's even, I mean, you mentioned this stuff, um, which is, is definitely, you know, um, on point with the, you know, police brutality and how, the, you know, the gun, uh, I used to the gun coming, but I think it's also the, the scenes of, um, you know, the party scene early on where the police are just hanging out in, in this mansion and just not giving a fuck about anything and uh, goofing off that like- Hanging out, with the, hanging out with the rich white folks. Exactly. Um, and it's that, that layer too, where it's just, you know, um, I think when I first saw the film, the, you know, after when he's in Blatnoid's office, then goes deeper into the Golden Fang. Um, on that second viewing, I mean, that's when um, it really, the film opened up for me. Um, it's weird. I thought it was a little weird, you know, in that scene, PTA uses a flashback, which he doesn't do a lot. Um, and when you see Jenna Malone's character, and I, and I always wondered if that's a thing where he's like, all right, I need to kind of hammer it home a little bit more here <laughs> that this is that everything is connected. Give the audience um, a break, give them something. Give them exactly. something. I, I wondered that too, because that is so not him to have a yeah. giant floating head <laughs> yeah. just superimpose over a scene and just re literally repeat information we've already heard just as a, hey, yeah. audience, you get it? Yeah. You, or, teeth, remember? Teeth. It's important. Yeah. Teeth. 
and, and I feel dumb because that was on the second view. And that was when I was like, okay, yeah, now everything I thought is kind of coming together. So I feel <laughs> so paid off. I, I, exactly. So, um, but yeah, no, to your point, it definitely is the, the mood of the film. And it honestly is Joaquin Phoenix performances performance. You know, I said that at, at the, uh, my first tweet or second tweet, and that's what carries me through. Like, we'll talk about this scene briefly. There's not much dialogue in it, but the few lines he has, just the way he delivers them is just <sighs> so perfect. And, uh, and a level of intensity we're not used to from Doc. Yes, exactly. Well, before we get into this scene, <laughs> you you did, you did, you did. Oh boy. You said, well, it's, it's, well, it's not a gotcha moment, but you, you, you said <laughs> that, uh, uh, you said that Phoenix, you, you said that this was PTA's most empathetic film, and I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, and that you said that, that Phoenix is absolutely perfect. And I also agree. I, I'm one of those people, I know that the, I, I have some friends who were big fans of the book and they kind of lamented that Robert Downey Jr. didn't end up getting the role, which I'm very, very happy with. I, because A, we've already seen him in, in a film, a LA film noir, which is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But also I feel like Doc is a little bit more mumbly and confused and a little bit more heart. And I really didn't want to see Downey's very kind of mannered, oh, well, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. bits of business that I think he, I didn't want to see him Tony Stark his way through inherent vice the way I kind of thought that he would. So yes, he is perfect. But what I'm getting to is the end of that sentence, which mm -hmm. is you also put Brolin is the secret MVP of inherent <laughs> vice. And I know that I've said that. I've also said though that Catherine Waterston is the secret MVP. Yeah. I know that I've said <laughs> This is the secret, this, this person. This, um, I really do think though, without hyperbole, I'm not making a joke. I'm not saying this to be cute. I truly believe this is Josh Brolin's finest performance of his career. I think it is the man at his absolute most fearless. You know, there's a, he did an interview when he was doing press for this film. And uh, I think the interviewer kind of mentioned, you know, you're on a bit of a hot streak, you know, you've, you, even if the movies I haven't always done as well as you want, like something like, like W, uh, you're on kind of this wild streak where you're making these really interesting choices, whether it's Planet Terror or uh, There Will Be Blood, or, or excuse me, not There Will Be Blood, but uh, No Country for Old Men. Okay, uh, yeah. uh, whether you, you, you're kind of making these really kind of risky, you're not going for the, the expected leading man roles that, that people I think kind of expect Josh Brolin to go for. And he said that he had decided kind of midway through his career that he wanted to switch things up and that he wanted to start risking looking like a fool. He said that that was what would, the only thing that would really make the roles interesting to him, the choices interesting to him, but also he thought the only way he might be able to get what he wanted out of, out of his performances or get out, out, of, out of his career was to risk looking foolish, pick the roles that would force him to make choices that might be stupid and might fail. And that that high, that high wire act would be the thrill. That would be, you know, to, that we're on the one heat uh, minute network here, the action would be the juice. And I feel like this role is kind of the crown jewel of that ethos in that this could have gone so spectacularly wrong both in Brolin's hands or any, I can't imagine anyone else doing this, but that there is, I gotta say that I, I, Joaquin Phoenix is always acting his ass off. He acts his ass, ass off in this movie, especially because he's playing kind of against type. 
Catherine Waterston, who so early in her career is just portraying mystery and ambiguity and femininity with such complexity and power that it is, it's impossible for me to separate her from the character. All of that's going on, and yet it's Bigfoot, man. It's Brolin. Mm-hmm. He, if he fucked this up, the movie doesn't work, which I think is an interesting thing to say about someone who is like your, your third lead, which is usually you're not depending on your third lead to be the glue. And I think that that's exactly what Bigfoot ends up being. He's the glue in this movie. He holds everything together, both plot-wise and thematically. And I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you said that. So I, I feel less crazy for saying it. Uh, but I think that everything he does is both a, he is both a shadow character to Doc. He is kind of underlining all of the themes that Doc represents. He's underlining all these ideas of loss and regret. But he's also, he's Doc, he's Doc a little on steroids in that the, the warped conservatism and the kind of the curdling of any kind of hope into just pure despair and corruption. I feel like these are things these are places Doc is headed if, if things don't change for him, if Doc's way of thinking about Shasta and himself and nostalgia don't change. And that's, that's, that's amazing to me. In, in addition to the fact that he's the linchpin of the plot, he literally guides the entire plot together. He, 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 there, is no, there is no universe, and I, I know I'm going on a rant, and I can see the, the blood draining from your face and the horror. No, no, it's, I love it. I love but it. Uh, uh, he truly is the MVP in that nothing nothing in this film works or holds together if Bigfoot isn't at 100%. If, 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 he is, if the character is not presented in the best, smartest, uh, most real way, and I really can't think of another actor other than Brolin who could actually pull that off, and he does so just beautifully. It's the best performance of his career. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's a role that could have been, uh, or a character that could have been a little like buffoonish or, I mean, Brolin talked it up in the press. Uh, he's probably said more about the film than anyone uh, when he's talking, revealing things. And I feel like he, um, he's someone who, you know, he talked a lot about the comedy elements of the film and how he was really able to go free on set. And I feel like um, if that's all the character was, it could have been a little buffoonish in one note, but, but PTA does give him this, you know, interior, interiority uh, with the family life and um, kind of his, his dash dreams of potentially, you know, being being more than a cop. <laughs> no cielo driver for Bigfoot. Exactly. No movie of the week for Bigfoot. And uh, and so I, yeah, so I, he is perfect. Definitely, I definitely agree with that. And I do think um, it's pretty clear, you know, from one of the we won't talk about the scene here, but uh, you will talk about it soon on the podcast. But one of the the last scenes in the film, um, it's this, you know, this almost inevitable conclusion. And, uh, and no other character in the film, obviously Catherine Watterson's character does, you know, get the final moments in the film, but I do think no character is more well-rounded than him uh, in a sense, which is very interesting. Think about the little pieces that make up his character, which are these kind of one-off rather silly confrontations <laughs> with, uh, with yeah. Doc, but, but, they, but they add so much. But what's, what's interesting about all those confrontations is that, as you said, you're saying you know, he's the most well-rounded character. And so he's been giving so much characterization and pathos, but it's, it's pathos that is couched entirely in the most humorous, ludicrous scenes of the film. And I think, again, that's part of that high wire act. It's part of that magic act is, you know, what's interesting is you talk to 
anyone about Bigfoot Bjornsson and you say, hey, name your favorite Bigfoot scene, no one is going to mention today's scene, which is fascinating because it's kind of a linchpin scene. But, you know, they're always going to talk about um, bananas and they're going to talk about Moto Penakeku and they're going to talk about eating the pot in the final scene or they're going to talk about fucking in the, <laughs> the opening interrogation. And what's interesting, though, about all of those sequences, about all of those sequences, bananas, penakeku, fucking uh, uh, the pot, is, or some of the more minor scenes, you know, I love when he calls, when he calls Doc to tease him that, uh, that Shasta Faye is dead. And he's like, she's not there. She went all groovy on us, maybe, maybe. Or uh, when he's, He's pouring, he's, uh, his son is pouring him a drink no, yeah. and he calls Doc and he's like, go to bed. Why would I go to bed? You called me. All of these scenes though, they're, they're all laugh out loud sequences, except for today's. They're all laugh out loud moments. And yet each and every one of them are what we also use to point at to say that this is a, an incredibly broken and destroyed and soul shattered man. And it's, again, I think it is a tribute to, to Brolin that, through these scenes of utter comedy and, and slapstick goofballery, he's able to give us the kind of logical self-destructive endpoint of the kind of heartbroken nostalgia that is, that is warping and wrestling with Doc. And again, that, I think most of the credit for that does go to Brolin. He's even said that, in, that the original shooting script provided to him by PTA, read by PTA, obviously, that the character was very one note on the page that that um, PTA had stripped away a lot of the nuance and had designed Bigfoot in the script to be just more, just more of a foil, just someone to always be there to fuck with Doc and make life difficult for Doc. And that it was Brolin who argued for returning that complexity to the character. And it was bro because he's like, you know, I don't have to, he's like, I don't have to worry about any other character in the movie. Like PTA, he's got to worry about Doc. He's got to worry about the narrator. He's got to worry about uh, fucking Crocker Fenway. He's like, all I got to worry about is Bigfoot. And I want, selfishly, I want Bigfoot to be everything possible that I can make him. And that includes being so sorrowful because clearly he's lost someone. And in, in doing that and adding those shadings and colors back to this character, it's weirdly... Not to say that PTA's instincts aren't right for his films, but I really do think that if Brolin hadn't done that, I don't know that the film works. I don't know that the film works if Bigfoot is the is only the banana blowing caricature that I think people who aren't as in love with the film see him as. I don't think the film works. Like it needs yeah. him to be no, this, yeah. this Morlock to Doc's Eloy uh, to 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 really kind of hamstring a metaphor in there. He has to be this heartbroken troll or, the, or it just it doesn't hold together thematically or or plot wise yeah yeah totally yeah and and the emotion at the end uh that you see in doc's eyes would not ring true if it if it weren't this kind of that they weren't cos cosmically uh intertwined to to always be uh yin and yang with each other <laughs> boy we're getting deep aren't we we're getting deep all right <laughs> On that note, we're going to watch this scene because, again, this is this is weirdly, I feel like it's the one scene that when people talk about Bigfoot, no one talks about this great, thrilling, kind of 70s neo-noir cop scene that comes out of nowhere, <laughs> crashes into the film, and it's, it's, it's one of my absolute favorites. So we're going to watch that and come back. 
Bigfoot? What the fuck? You take care of him, okay, Doc? You fucking lunatic! What is this? I'm in enough shit personally with the captain. And I've seen you on the ranch. Nice work. What are you? And that there, is that what, that what I think it is? Huh? There's one or two of them. There's more enough left for evidence. Man, Bigfoot, I saw the movie. As I recall, that character comes to a bad end. Put the gun away, Doc. What? The gun. Put it away. This is the golden thing you're about to rip off, man. The fully fucking weird outfit that kills people. That's according to your own delusional system. Get in the car. Get in the car. Okay, Doc, you have what looks to be a 20 kilo inconvenience in your trunk, and Bigfoot no doubt putting out word to that effect. And once again, you're the bait. So I want to throw something out there. Uh, and we're PTA here today. I get the feeling this is the kind of thing he'd immediately dismiss with a no, no, we weren't thinking about that at all. Uh, but he's not here. You are, and hopefully you're not going to say the same thing. Uh, but um, in having done this show, and as I said, having broken the film down into so many component parts, you really start to see how each scene is infused with the themes of the entire film, as well as how so many scenes really begin to mirror the overall structure of the film in really interesting ways. And our sequence today has not one, but two of my favorite visuals from Inherent Vice. And the first is the very long shot that begins this scene. You've got Doc in Adrian Prush's garage, gun drawn, camera focused purely on him. Everything around him is out of focus, fuzzy, indistinct. And he stumbles forward into the blur and slowly but surely a figure comes into focus. Bigfoot, as if to answer the question that B 
begins with what I call the the bummer noir arc of the film. Uh, the question Sordeliege asks when Doc uh, asks for Doc when uh, he's walking to Adrian's. That question, who's got my back? Well, the answer is it's right here. Uh, Doc's partner might not be Shasta or Penny or anyone else. It's 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 this. It's this funhouse mirror reflection of himself, Bigfoot. And and my point is, and I I'm getting pretentious. I know. Uh, I love how to reveal that. I love how this scene mirrors visually the structure of the film. It keeps its focus on Doc, 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 as the playing field around him remains just as fuzzy and confusing to him as it is to us. And only in the end does a key player cohere into a figure we recognize, and only then do we understand what is happening. And that is true of this scene. And I think it's, I think it's, that's, that's, is that not the structure of the entire film that we are wandering in, our hand on this guy's shoulder, Doc, walking in front of us as he's leading us into this extraordinarily blurred and confusing and uh, indistinguishable, indistinguishable film. And only in the end do we start to go, oh, oh, and we, we begin to see things uh, more clearly. We begin to see uh, what, is, what is being given to us. And I, I, again, we talk about the movie magic. That's just magic to me. It's beautiful. I mean, that, that, is, that brings a tear to my eye, the way you describe this scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I do. This scene is fascinating because it's, it's the one scene where the first few times I rewatched it, every time it starts, I forget it's in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the- yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, this. I think there's a few reasons. One is it is. I think it's the only handheld shot of the film. Maybe I, there's, I'm there, there's one more, and I'm, I'm always curious as to why. But it, it's interesting. There, the two, the two handheld sequences that I can recall are both when Doc is hardcore doing detective shit, and it's um, okay. it's when he takes off his shoes and he's trying to get up to. Mickey's bungalow at Cristalidone. Oh, yeah. It's very chaotic and shaky. And okay, yes, even more yes. so than this sequence. But yeah, it, it both <laughs> times, it's when Doc is like hardcore in like Jim Rockford mode, solving something. Yeah, but um, so that, that's fascinating as well. And then it comes off the scene where you're getting um, the only like real gunplay in the film as well for detective yeah. stories, interesting. And so, um, but I totally agree with your assessment. I know you love, uh, you know, when the guest kind of battles, uh, shuts you down, but I I can't, I cannot disagree with that. So challenge um, me, Jordan, you only make me stronger. Do it. No, no. Um, no, I, I I can't disagree. I I think I love the, uh, the way Bigfoot in the scene, uh, I mean, we can get more into the dialogue as well, but, um, you know how in the beginning of the film, when you, when, uh, they're in the, the office, the, uh, in the police station, and um, and Buff- Bigfoot kind of amps up this kind of paranoia that's happening, and this kind of, you know, he says something about, you know, th- there's much, there's a lot more, uh, a lot deeper stuff going on here than what you than what you think. And then here you get the kind of the flip side where he says, you know, that's according to your own delusional system. Yeah. Um, and it kind of shake. It just shows this duality of the film where you're not entirely sure uh, what's reality and and what's not. Um, obviously, like I don't think this scene is meant to be some dream scene but i do think it shows like each character has these two these two versions of the world um in their brains this you know this 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 paranoia drenched one and then kind of seeing what's real um 
and the whole film is kind of a fight between those, I think. That's a great way of putting it. That's a really great way of putting it. And I also think that part of that comes from the fact that Bigfoot has the whole story at this point. And Doc is just beginning to, like, Doc still doesn't quite understand what's going on, you know, when uh, uh, he's like, man, Bigfoot, I saw that movie, as I recall, that character comes to a bad end, because he's seeing Bigfoot right now thinking uh, that, that, that Bigfoot is just ripping off the fang, which is not mm-hmm. exactly what is happening. We're going we're gonna to get to that, but that, that's not exactly what is happening. But it's also something to keep in mind is I love how, I'm sure that, you know, we're PTA here. He's just going to, he'd say, yeah, well, you know, no, no, no. This, that was just the, the whole coming out of the blur. That was just, he's coming out of a PCP high, but that's all that is. It's just the dude, you know, he, he was shot up with PCP and you know, he's losing his mind. Uh, and so, so that whole thing about, you know, oh, that's, that's just mirroring the themes of the film and the structure. Come on. Uh, but that's, that's the, well, that's something that I think adds to the very unique energy of this film is it's very rare that you see anything close to Bigfoot having the upper hand in a sequence with Mm -hmm. Doc. Even when Doc is under arrest, Doc's that, he's unflappable, he's making jokes, fucking, uh, (laughs) you know, he, he, he never allows, with maybe the one exception of Bigfoot getting that dig in on the phone, convincing him that Shasta Faye is dead. And this is the one moment where Doc truly frays. Like he just, he just can't understand what Bigfoot is doing. Big, and Bigfoot is the one that is totally in control and knows exactly what's going on while Doc is screaming that great, that great line. This is the golden fang you're about to rip off, man. The fully fucking weird outfit that kills people. Sweating and pointing a gun at this cop, which is a Doc that we have not seen before at all. And it's a, again, we, we talk about how, how important the casting is to this film and how amazing Brolin is. And while I, I, while I, I adore Brolin in this scene and I love the kind of weird, angry, big brother, I'm going to help you, but I'm going to bust your balls at the same time kind of attitude he brings to this. This is another reason why casting Joaquin Phoenix is never a bad idea because the way he is able to go from heartbroken goofball hippie to kind of puppy dog detective to just outright maniacal PCP high within just minutes. It's just, it's, it's perfect, but it does create this very, very intense, which is not a, not a word I think that is frequently associated with inherent vice. It creates this incredibly intense energy and kind of gives us the climax to what I keep calling this, this mini arc in the film where it goes pure seventies hangover detective movie. And you're right. It's, it's also, it's, it's, it is so tonally different from the rest of the film that whenever I start the movie, I always forget that it's going to come to this point. And I'm always just thinking yeah. lazy Neil Young sadness. And I always forget, Oh no, there's kind of a badass detect mini movie, uh, detective mini movie in that sucker. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating. I love, so, I love the way uh, the way Phoenix also um, says a line, you fucking lunatic, and, and draws out the fucking... <laughs> you, you <laughs> it's fucking like he's slowly lunatic. realizing what... Yeah, <laughs> like he's slowly realizing what's happening. And, and the staging is great, and it's not, you know, Brolin's not there just like sitting on the car waiting for him to come or something. No, like, you take care of him, okay, Doc? This. Yeah, exactly. He just It's like you're in this blur of what's, of you know, wondering what is actually going on. And then, as you said, it comes into focus. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's perfect. And so, and so earlier I called this the, 
one a narrative crux for the entire film uh, because it's 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 the moment that we that we the audience receive confirmation of what Doc suspected when he was reading Adrian's jacket, and that is that Bigfoot has been nudging Doc towards this moment for quite a while now, and go on a limb here. This is a real limb, so you might swap me here on this one. Um, I always think about how that says something interesting about agency in this film. Uh, in that Doc has more or less been bounced and strung and string pulled along and puppeteered to this moment that we're at today by Bigfoot so that Bigfoot could live out his revenge fantasy against Adrian and Puck for having killed his partner. And again, you can swat this one away. No offense, no offense taken. Uh, so, the, so, so Bigfoot could live out his fantasy. Uh, but isn't that kind of also what Doc was pushing for a little bit with Shasta in trying to, in his own mind, maneuver her into a kidnapping plot for her to be rescued from? And isn't Bigfoot also kind of a pawn in a larger chess game with the Fang? I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is it, it's interesting to me how it seems like every character, how the main characters in this film are constantly trying to maneuver and position the other characters in this film so that they can tell their, the story that they want to tell, that they can have the narrative that they want to have. You know, we mentioned Joan Didion earlier, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live and we tell ourselves stories to make sense of the chaos and the pain. And it's, it's very interesting how Bigfoot positions Doc so that his story of vengeance can be told. Uh, but I also think that there's something perhaps to their kinship and that Doc does the same thing with Shasta, desperately trying to push her into a damsel in distress to be rescued. So because that's the story that Doc needs. And again, swat away, Jordan. If you don't like it, it's just it's something that I think about a lot when it comes to this scene and you and you realize how how herky jerky the forces are around Doc, pulling him constantly. And how it seems like all of the characters have someone doing that to them, whether it's Koi, whether it's Doc, whether it's Shasta, whether it's Bigfoot. Someone is always pushing them on the board. Someone else is. I, I find that to be kind of an interesting and depressing uh, a vision in the film. Yeah. I'm taking them all in. I, I do. I like it. I think. <laughs> I it like is, it. It, it, but it opens up, uh, yeah, a thought I hadn't had before, but it is, I wonder, you know, because the, you know, the sex scene that, that happens not, Quick, not soon before this, or pretty soon before this, is perhaps a breaking point then for Doc to, um, because he realizes what you, everything you just laid out, that he was pushing Shasta toward, you know, towards this damsel distress mode, and that that's kind of his, you know, she reckons that uh, there's a reckoning there in that scene yeah. uh, from her, and so perhaps it does give him the motivation then in this scene to kind of um, do everything he does because it's the first time we see him actually act like somewhat of a detective. Uh, where he is maybe expressing um, or using this as an outlet to, you know, get up uh, and be more of a more of a force to reckon with. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, no, it, it totally and, does. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's interesting the way you say, you know, everyone is, you know, this pawn in this chess game. Um, you know, uh, Josh Brolin's line where he's like, I've had enough shit. I'm in enough shit with the captain um, that, you know, he couldn't kind of do this himself. Uh is, is interesting because it does show kind of that other layer that's there uh, that's always above him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 
I always I always wonder though if that's if that's an excuse that uh, that Doc is making or excuse me that Bigfoot is making uh, that that is an excuse that he makes to basically dissolve himself of his own coward cowardice in that yeah he he gives the excuse you know I'm an enough shit personally with the with the captain and I've seen you on the range nice work that I wonder if it's that. I think that maybe Bigfoot's just too much of a coward to to act, and that I think that again, that's almost one of what one of the warnings that Bigfoot's character represents to Doc is this calcification of conser- of growing conservatism to the point where he is a man who literally cannot avenge his dead partner, maybe lover, and has to give it to someone else to, to make the moves because he just will he will not do it, and. In true, you know, and in, in, in true like LAPD fashion, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll he's going to design a murder sequence, uh, and he's and he is, and in that way, he is very Didion-esque. He is creating a story. He's making he's making sure there's enough heroin left in Adrian Prussia's trunk to connect, you know, make sure that uh, Prussia is seen as a person of ill repute. Uh, he's making sure that he was not the one that fired any of the bullets that killed any of the men here or one of the men here and that he certainly didn't inject a, a, a hot shot overload of heroin into Puck Beaverton's neck. And he is designing a crime scene much as the golden Fang did with his partner. He is designing a crime scene and a narrative uh, to get away with murdering these men, but it's also, it's still a cowardly act. And there is something though that I think slightly redeems that act. And that is in that, I'm going to get to it. I know I'm, we're being long-winded today, Jordan. I, I got, I'm in a mood today. I'm feeling I, feisty I feel like, today. No, I love it. I feel like this is a scene most people kind of just brush off. And so it's, it is kind of fast. Which kills me because this is like, to me, this is kind of an emotional climax in a lot of yeah. ways for the film. So I said that, you know, I find the tone of this scene to be so interesting. It's unlike anything else in the film. There's this, this genuine sweaty life or death desperation of Doc. as he's Because he's, he's trying like us. I think that... A lot of people, especially if they hadn't had the, the benefit of reading the book the first time they see it, they're trying to piece together what the fuck is going on at this point. So, like, the, the, the first throb of real violence of consequence has occurred in the film. I mean, I guess, yeah, we could, Glenn Sherlock being killed, but he's essentially an extra. Uh, you know, this is the first real violence with consequence in the film. And the audience is just like reeling from that and reeling from a doc they have not seen before. And then all of a sudden we have Bigfoot here. And like, I think like Doc, a lot of the people in the audience are like, Bigfoot, what the fuck are you, what is this? And then on top of that, you have Bigfoot throwing kilo after kilo of heroin into the back of his, of his car. Uh, and even in the, that leaves us as confused as, as Doc in that, you know, if, if Bigfoot has already gotten revenge, for the fans that are even able to keep track of that, 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 that this is all vengeance for Vincent and Delicato, a character we hear about but never see. If he's already gotten his revenge, if he's already created this, this very, very curated narrative murder scene, why steal the smack and then put targets on, on his back in Doc's? And that comes to something that I wanted to talk about with you and that you mentioned, which is this is the first kind of, this is this whole arc, this, this, this bummer noir arc that I keep calling it. Uh, this is really the first time we've seen Doc be a real ass detective. Like, as you said, after the sex scene, it's like, 
I'm going to put the childish shit away. I'm going to quit pining for Shasta. I'm going to look at the shit I should have been looking at and I'm going to act the way I should have acted. And I should, this is something I should have done six reels ago. And um, all of that confusion, especially of Doc's, is countered by the moment he intuits something with, with what Sartelige calls this doper's ESP that, that Bigfoot has, he's able to sense just that detective intuition that Bigfoot has put 20 kilos of uncut heroin from the Golden Triangle, or Fang, in his truck, his trunk. And that's like I said, from, from Doc reading Adrian's jacket to strolling into his office to killing he and Puck up to right now, when he puts his Shasta bullshit aside, Doc is really fucking good. He's a really good detective. He, what's the trailer say? He ain't a do-gooder, but he done good. He's incredibly cagey how he pieces Adrian's position with the LAPD together and how he connects it to Bigfoot. And then he bravely scares, squares off against Adrian and Puck. And then here, still sweating off PCP and adrenaline from having murdered two men, he's able to bloodhound the situation and he knows that Bigfoot is up to something more. And to me, that, again, as you, I, I think that you're very right. I think that this is a scene that most people watch it and it's like, wow, I don't know what the hell that was. Uh, it's another downer, like the sex scene. But to me, this is both a confirmation that Doc truly is our hero, is a hero, but also it's confirming everything that, the film is kind of about it's it's confirming that hey while you were over here lost in your nostalgia and your sad boy shit all of these wrongs that have contributed to why everything is so bad now it's all been happening while you were over here pining for something that, that, that's gone that's lost and that to me just confirms not to, to pat some of us on the back here but like i think that's an argument that lots have made what the uh, that the film is about and i feel like this sequence is a a total confirmation of all of that. Now, am I being super pretentious? Like, I'm waiting for you to challenge no, me. No, no, something, sure. no, I'm I can't. I mean, I I'm can't. Waiting. I can't. It's come on, push no. me just a little. Um, I, I mean, that is a spot on. That is, I literally have notes saying this. That, that is, <laughs> this is like, the, I, I will send them to you. No, um, yeah, no, I think, I think it definitely is a scene where, um, I also love the, the way he shoots the, uh, you know, the, um, the handcuffs on on Joaquin out the window like as as they're driving in the night um oh. which you don't really talk about too um thank you thank you for just, saying that I I, okay. <laughs> I was gonna I, I'll, I'll brief aside I said that there this this sequence contains two of my favorite shots in this oh, okay. and and one of them I just wanted to say real quick it's I don't know how Ellswit shot it but it looks like a fucking velvet painting and it is one of my all-time favorite shots in the film. All right, I'm going to throw you off track. I just, I adore that shot. I cannot specify why. It looks like a film right out of 1977. There's something very, yep. very unique and special about it. Okay, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it does, because most of the film does take place in the daytime, at least uh, the stuff with uh, Bigfoot and Doc. Yeah. And so I think it is, we are seeing this kind of nocturnal life and uh or lack of life perhaps at, at nighttime that is that is uh that is now kind of leading to the, the darker you know the end shot where it isn't it isn't the dark as well which is interesting um well, this is this is why you're on the show because i'm over here going it looks cool it's like a velvet painting you're like well no actually it's kind of like the shadow point where they go into the <laughs> you're actually making a, a lucid argument why i'm just i'm just like well doesn't that look cool doesn't that look cool Jordan? no no it's great um 
and it has and and I, there's a few other like touches here which i because i pulled up the script as well and it's um you know when they go to the tow yard which you're not even sure i mean they say that his car was towed and stuff but you're not it's not very clear that where you are really when when you're there um and in the script it says you know doc's filling out paperwork but in the movie he's um literally throwing dirt on his own car uh, <laughs> trying, trying to get big <laughs> trying to get bigfoot and then throws the keys right at him and then leaves and it just it's like this it's just a microcosm of everything in the movie which is just hilarious where he's just kind of fucking up his own his own life while he's just trying to do something to um, so petulant and and so pissed yeah. and the way yeah. and i love the way brolin just keeps walking just kind of twists his shoulder and <laughs> yeah. just walks into the flying plants it, it is such just two brothers just two brothers sick of each other's shit mm-hmm. now this this brings us i'm glad you brought us mm-hmm. to that that tow yard in canoga park because mm-hmm. uh well really quickly briefly let's just Let's brief aside. I know we were going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Brief aside. Uh, in talking about that moment, that very short moment in which Doc and and Bigfoot are driving, and again, there is just something. Nothing else in the film is shot quite like that, and it is mm-hmm. it is very. It was jarring to me. I still remember the first time I saw it in a theater, really being taken aback by the moment. I don't know why. It was just visually so different from the rest of the film. To the point that even the first night when I walked out of the theater, I think the two things I thought about most were the opening eight minutes. And I kept going back to, man, that, that wild shot in, in Roland's car, it really looked like something out of an Arthur Penn movie from like 1975. Like I, I can't quite place why, but it just does. I wanted to have a brief shout out to that scene, if only for maybe my favorite, favorite Brolin line delivery in the film, which is, he's desperately trying to pull off a true conspiracy. Like he's actually pulling off conspiratorial murder here. He's got a lot of moving parts. He's trying to shaft this massive multinational global uh, evil corporation slash drug cartel slash cabal of dentists slash pseudo philosophical, pseudo philosophical entity that is destroying all of American life. He's trying to fuck that up, get revenge, pull off this murder and he still has it in him to be annoyed that Doc parked in a red zone. And the way he says, we had to impound your car again. It was parked illegally in front of Adrian's. I, I, I don't know why that makes me so happy, but it never ceases to make me happy that in the midst of all this madness, he has to point out, like you couldn't have parked in a, on, on the regular curb. You had to park there, really, dude? There's something about that. It's just it's so it's a very bigfoot moment that he would have to stop and, and point that out. We had to impound your car again. <laughs> Although we later find out that the bigfoot needed to impound the car. Yeah. And that's what I that's why I say I'm glad you bring us to that tow yard in, in, in Canoga Park, California. Because it brings us to one of the few truly redeeming things I think about Bigfoot Bjornson. He didn't steal all of that heroin to piss off the Golden Fang, although I'm sure that was a bonus for him. He does it so that Doc has a bargaining chip with the Golden Fang to bust Coy Harlingen loose, to get Coy Harlingen out of the thing. I think, I'm sure that Bigfoot knows Doc has way too much integrity 
to have all this heroin in his trunk and try to move it on the street on his own or even get the fang to buy it back, which is what Crocker Fenway kind of is hoping for. Like, let's make this a monetary transaction. He's giving Doc the one thing that can be used to rescue Amethyst Harlingen from the little kid blues. And I'm not going to start crying, I promise. But that is something that really kicks me in the heart every time I watch this movie is that that ultimately, they use each other a lot. You know, Big Bigfoot is obviously, obviously using doc to to further his his plot of revenge against adrian and puck and i think that in a lot of ways doc is often just as often feeling putting the feelers out on bigfoot trying to get information on where shasta Faye could be and yet there's this this one kind of wonderfully pure moment out in the sticks of the valley in which these two men come together they put their bullshit aside although Bigfoot only puts it aside once he's achieved his and they're like, and they, even if doc doesn't quite know it at the moment, they come together for a common goal. And that is to rescue this one little girl from the little kid blues. And it's only this heroine that's going to allow doc to do that. I don't think that that's something that a lot of people grasp on first or second viewings. There's so much going on that I really think that by this point, a lot of people are just done and they're lost. But I think, yeah, if you give it that time, like this is a really fucking humanist moment. Again, it's all of his moments are buried in, in, in goofball uh, comedy. And it, it, we're just laughing at this moment in which we're, you know, they're throwing plants at each other and shit. But this, with the exception of the, his final scene, this is Bigfoot kind of showing the most, his, his greatest potential for humanity, which is here's all this heroin you're going to use this to get this girl, to get this girl, her dad back. And there's something really beautiful about that to me. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's interesting too, because it is also a little contradictory with the voiceover you hear with, uh, cause other things sort of each says, you know, there's 20 kilos of Coke, uh, like you're the bait and you kind of have the sinking feeling like, Oh, the cops are going to come up now yeah. and get him. But yeah. it is, it is interesting because it does make you rethink a lot of the voiceover throughout the film because it is, isn't entirely, um, uh, objective, you know, uh, about what what the true meaning of it is, which is what you just kind of beautifully laid out once again. Uh, oh, bless <laughs> as I sit your here just As I sit here just nodding at <laughs> how eloquent how, uh, uh, it is, yes. Um, but, you know, that's interesting yeah. that you put, because, well, you know, I think that's that's another one of those things that, oh boy, we're going to go on to a whole sword leash thing now, aren't we? But uh, that is interesting because this is definitely, for me, one of those scenes where at least in its ha- when it's happening, I'm like, well, she definitely has to be in his head. Like, she has to be Doc. Sorley has to be Doc because she's reacting the way Doc reacts. You know, oh, Bigfoot, you motherfucker. Okay, you have what looks to be a 20 kilo inconvenience in your truck, trunk, and uh, Bigfoot, no doubt, putting the word out to that effect. And once again, you're the bait. But at the same time, I almost feel like you could also make the argument that, that she's realizing at the same time that Doc is realizing. Like, Doc when doc thinks or sort of leisure whoever is thinking okay you're the bait that might not mean you're the bait for the cops i think in that moment he's kind of realizing like you know in the very the very funny following scene which always gets a laugh from doc (laughs) sitting in his kitchen in that very cold morning light with all these stacks of of heroin or coke or whatever this is around him 
I love how it cuts the scene out of him bringing them upstairs. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> it's just him sitting the there staring. Yeah. Waiting, the 10 trips like, he had to take to bring them all up <laughs> like he knows someone's coming looking for this and yeah you, you know, he's only hoping that he will have the wherewithal to be in a negotiating uh position and to his surprise he actually things work out very well for him in that regard and that he act this is actually someone he can he does have a bargaining chip with or a past with but again i just in that way that this feels like such a pta movie to me because obviously it is i know but you've read the book in the book this whole sequence is far colder and far more ambiguous it's actually kind of left it's still kind of left in the open like doc leaves this scene thinking that bigfoot might have killed his partner like he's he's not convinced that that bigfoot didn't do that and in fact they don't even leave adrian's together doc leaves on foot and a stumbling bleeding out adrian follows him and Bigfoot follows them both watching just long enough to make sure that, that, that Adrian dies. And yet here, none of that is, none of that coldness or ugliness is there. And again, it's just these two heartbroken dudes who want to keep this one little girl from being heartbroken. And that is so much the, the hopeful spirit of this movie is that even Bigfoot Bjornsson, hippie hating mad dog himself is like in all his other scenes, when you strip away the humor, there is so much pathos and humanity there. And God damn it. I know I'm a big sucker for the, the, the detectives and the cops who do one good thing, but this is, this is so that. This is just, and, and, and in a way, and in a way, as, as, as I said earlier, how the plot doesn't work without Bigfoot, just like the themes don't work without Bigfoot. This plot doesn't resolve unless Bigfoot puts, Big, uh, puts Doc in this position. Like without him scoring all of this, all of this heroin, and getting it into Doc's kitchen. There's no end to this movie. There's no getting Koi out. There's no, it just, the movie would just kind of trail off into nothing. Like Bigfoot is such a necessity. And it's why I'm so, I was so excited to have someone on today who is very adamantly in the Bigfoot MVP slot uh, arguing for that because without him, they're really, as much as we love Doc, as much as we love Shorto, excuse me, Shasta, there's no, there's no inherent vice without, Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson. There's just, there's no movie without him. We need him. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we, as we, as we say that, um, I know, I know we're supposed to be too cool and we're not supposed to pay attention to this kind of thing. Uh, this is just a little bit of trivia I want to throw out since we're talking, since we're talking about uh, the tow yard in Canoga Park, um, I know PTA would frown at this, but, uh, if anyone is doing a potential spot Thomas Pinchon game when watching the film, did you ever notice that when we cut to Bigfoot pulling Doc's car out of impound, there's a dude sitting at the impound desk wearing glasses, hunched over and writing in a book Did you catch that? I- I only rewatched this about five times. Yeah, now, now I did. Yeah. <laughs> you got any thoughts on that? Do you have, do you, do you do you have a pin in in, in the film for your uh, spot spot Thomas Pinchon? I mean, it does match up if because I mean Brolin had to be on set, right? That's the whole mm-hmm. thing. That that's the one clue we have. Brolin's the one. And that he was on it. set that day, and it was a very that would be a very uh, small crew compared to you know if there was a party scene. So if PJ yeah. wanted to sneak something in. Uh, it, and he didn't want to do it in a police station or, or a mansion. 
uh, this would be the time to do it. On a, a night, on a midnight, night uh, Yeah, night. Three, it feels like about 3 a.m. there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that would be the time to do it. I mean, I don't think there's any discernible details other than it's a man uh, with a little bit of light above his head, right? Yeah, and in true increment vice sickness, uh, I have done some looking. Now, uh, IMDB, <laughs> I'm really going so I'm going down a worm wormhole here and the imdb lists an actor named dallas james as playing a mechanic in oh. the film now i don't know if this person here counts as a mechanic because technically this is just an impound yard uh but hey it's something to think about jordan yeah it's something let's to get his contact info and call him and just to confirm we'll, we'll go to the i will list. i will be honest i do have his twitter account i have been tempted to dm <laughs> him but at the same time like i'm trying to have some decency here and do you like? Does someone really want to be pestered about a night shoot that they were on six or seven years ago, in which they were an extra? And plus, I kind of don't want to know the answer because then I mean that's that's kind of the whole fun of this is if you know the answer, then what's the point? Like once you have the answer, right. then it's the mystery. Where's the mystery? Like right. I, I kind like of like film, that. I kind of like that. This is just there's a we talk about you know we've talked about layer upon layer upon layer i kind of like the idea that i just watch this go hey there he is tommy p or maybe not i don't know but I, it gives you that layer of like it's just one more interesting thing to play with with this scene i don't know yeah that's my no, those are my okay. my disturbed disturbed thoughts <laughs> on on this scene of inherent vice <laughs> jordan i have to say that i I'm so glad that you came on for today's scene because because I feel like this is definitely a I feel like this is definitely a sequence because it is so kind of tonally opposed to the rest of the film and relatively quick in that tonal opposition that it doesn't get filed away as part of inherent vice for a lot of people and the other scene that is so tonally jarring, the sex scene, is at least so long that it's, it, you can't ignore it. And so devastating, you can't ignore it. And I feel like, it, but I feel like this one gets blown away a lot. And it is, it is honestly one of my favorite, favorite moments of the film. And it brings to bear so much of the, the 70s gritty neo-noir stuff that I think a lot of people were maybe kind of hoping some of this film would be and wasn't. And it's just, it's an added flavor uh, to this universe that I really enjoy. And I am so glad that someone who loves the sequence, who feels the same way, who actually pointed out Doc and Bigfoot riding in the car. I am so glad that someone like that came on the show today. So I have to say thank you so much for, for joining me on this midnight ride with, with Doc and Bigfoot because it has been an absolute blast for me. Well, it is, it is a complete honor to be on. I mean, I remember when you guys announced this on Twitter that this was coming. Yay! You know, what, a year over a year ago now, um, and then to see it actually come to fruition is amazing. And I know you're getting to the end here, so I'm very, very glad I could uh, sneak in. You know, one, one, one of the final spots here as you as you wind down. And I, I again, it was the perfect spot. You, this, <laughs> you were the perfect guest for the spot because you know why? You respect this moment. You respect yes. this moment, and I don't think a lot of people do. But before <laughs> before we let you go, I want you to tell everyone where they can find your work. Sure, um, at thefilmstage.com or um, on Twitter at J-P-R-A-U-P. Um, I also work for New York Film Festival and that's coming up very, very soon. So um, for the first time, it'll be available 
uh, nationwide, which is exciting with virtual screenings. So um, yeah, check it out coming September, October. And in addition to that, you will also see my man Jordan here posting copious news updates. Oh, there will be many, yeah. On a, a an untitled film, maybe called Soggy Bottom. Yeah. We don't know. I kind of hope it's not called Soggy Bottom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm not crazy about that title, but you know what? Whatever it is, we're gonna love it. And this man here is gonna be on the beat, giving you the information <laughs> you need to so follow him. Again, Jordan, thank you again so much for coming on and talking about the scene with me. Thank you everyone for listening, and be sure to come back next week where myself and a very special guest are going to sit down and have a drink with that Palos Verdes Prince of Darkness himself, Crocker Finway. Oh, Bigfoot, you may be a coward. You may be another L.A. cop in a city lousy with them, but you did manage to do one good thing. And maybe that's all any person can do. Just one good thing to stand against the dark. Or is it the gold? Well, that's what Doc aims to find out. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.